0: Please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Hello and welcome to Morning Espresso. My name is Carlo Fasinati, and I'll be your moderator today. As always, the concept of our Morning Espresso is really simple. Every week, I invite a special guest to discuss topics that matter most to you. This week's special guest is Dr. Asmirantrola Hansen, head of the multi assets team at Nerdy Asset Management, as well as the portfolio manager of our stable return and alpha strategies. But before we speak to Aspirin, as always, we'll speak to Dr. Sebastian Galli, nordea Asset Manage- Management's Senior Macro Strategist, who will take us over through some economic highlights. As always, at the bottom of your screen, you have a question function. We invite you to ask the questions throughout this webinar, or you can send an email to Funds at nordea.com, or as always, talk to your sales representative after this webinar. So without further ado, let's head on over to our colleague and friend, Sebastian. Sebastian, good morning. I think you're still on mute, Sebastian. I think we have to – can you unmute yourself?
1: There I you go. Know, good, morning. Good. good morning. <laughs> good
0: morning. How mo- are you? I'm good. How are you? Very fine. Very fine. How can uh, I help so, you? And so, so where are you joining us from today? We've been speaking to you for the last
1: few weeks from, from Bavaria. Are you still there? No, we actually moved back to Luxembourg. The schools have reopened, restaurants are uh, starting to reopen. The stores are reopening, so we're back in Luxembourg.
0: Well, I think that's really great news to see that you know we're heading back to a sense of normality after uh, you know a tough uh, start to the year. But I'm happy that both you and your family are doing well, and, and welcome back uh, here to Luxembourg. Thank you for. So look, if we look at the first slide uh, that uh, my colleague will upload uh, right now. We see a picture here of President Donald Trump and the Fed Chairman uh, Powell. Uh, perhaps here, they're in a, in a little bit of a discussion, Sebastian. There's been speculation uh, in the last few uh, weeks that the Federal Reserve is thinking of following suit uh, to, the, to the Eurozone countries, uh, Sweden, Denmark, as well as Switzerland, and possibly going into negative rates. What are your thoughts around this? Well,
1: first one should point out that the Fed has kind of denied it or said no, um, particularly Chairman Powell. So you would think that it is over. And of course, it, it isn't. And the market correctly perceives that this is a, a possibility. And we think it's actually a very strong possibility. Why? Because the shock is enormous. And this is the correct reaction is basically to go uh, deeper into negative interest rates. There's pressure, obviously, from the White House, um, from the president, basically, to go for negative interest rates. He's a Republican. They are mostly Republicans. And so to some extent, they will try to help them to get re reelect it. it has a negative impact, obviously, on financials, banks, and the likes, because it reduces what we call net income or the ability to generate the money from the curve. It also, and very importantly, speeds up the speed of recovery of the uh, of the economy, the U.S. economy with obvious implications for Europe, but also emerging markets. Emerging markets, you can think of Mexico, Asia-Pacific, China. If demand rebounds faster in the eurozone, this is very, very good news for them. What is the impact on EM is good. What is the impact on currencies? It's probably mixed in terms of emerging market currency. It's quite positive for the euro dollar. Uh, dollar should weaken, You're probably looking at euro dollar 112, 113. Sebastian, if, if we go to, to negative rates, where, where do you
0: think the, the USD will
1: go? Well, the U.S. dollar is is uh, either versus emerging markets or versus developed markets. And what you could ex- expect is versus some de- developed markets, the eurozone, sterling, and the likes, it should weaken somewhat, not very much. You're looking at two, three percent or something of that nature. In countries which produce commodities, such as Australia, New Zealand, um, and Canada, they should actually do quite well. And in emerging markets, the one the economies which are deeply cyclical uh, and uh, a function of global uh, global environment including also Sweden and Germany, that is very, very uh, good news for them. So uh, theoretically, they should do well. The reality is more complex, central banks intervene, hide their interventions and the likes, but broadly speaking, it's a good story for emerging markets.
0: And if we if we move on to our our next uh, slide, uh, I think most of our our viewers now have gotten to know you in the last two weeks, but maybe one thing uh, that they don't know about you is that you were a professor uh, uh, or teacher rather at at NYU for graduate students. And one of the and if you were a professor or back to your teaching days and you were looking at uh,
1: sort of this picture, what does it tell you? Well, first, I love teaching and I recommend anybody to go if they can and they want to to have the experience and it's an extraordinary one. If we focus on on the chart, what you can see is that things get expensive. And one of the measures of it is what we call the forward price to earning ratio, which is a short term way of looking at valuations. And we focus on this specific stock, which is Alphabet. It tells you that in theory, this is really, really expensive, but this is what happens to all growth stocks. They emerge from the noise, people think, oh, it's a new market. It's a new story. It could be like an automated car, for example, that drives by itself. Uh, And and you're in the initial stages, two, three weeks, and then six months, a year, two years down the road, it attracts more and more capital, which feeds into the price. Option pricing then kicks in. It Basically, by their hedging activity, it reduces the range or the, the risk of the downside in, the, in this trend and reinforces the trend. And more people come in until you arrive at variations that are sensical from a long-term point of view. Maybe a Google, for example, uh, they, they acquire over 5, 10 years, 15 years a dominating position. Or they're actually Yahoo's and you basically have a company which is completely devoid of, uh, of link to fundamentals and economic reality. And then you get a, a very brutal correction.
0: And, and Sebastian, what, what explains such, such an anomaly? You, you want to belong an Amazon any day of the
1: week, right? You do if you know it's Amazon, and that is a key issue. And we are in the process of discovering right now at this point in time, and we do that, for example, in climate, you are exploring companies that most people don't know anything about but some of them will emerge and they will become very 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 big going forward and so what you have is a, a lot of reaction to very little news a bit of positive news a little bit of a negative news people are very uncertain do i have a google or do i have a yahoo or do i have a internet or kind of uh, product and because the reaction is so strong um, and then it creates basically a lot of momentum generally it tends to be positive positive. Uh, and basically that is the story of, uh, of growth stocks in general they, they create this uh, positivity They're there's another element which is that it becomes more popular, more well known, which is the crowd effect. It goes to Twitter, Facebook, and what you have is, is is professionals then aggregating this information to create a sense of whether I should buy or sell the signal. A decade ago, I was already talking to some of the first people doing it. They came from Israel, was a mat- mathematical professor from Tel Aviv University, and and they already had it using technologies of of the of the area and that must have gone so much more sophisticated than then. It was already extremely sophisticated at the time. Another element is that in a crisis, there are constraints. You can't buy what you want. And people are very fearful. And what it means is six months, 12 months down the road, people start to do things they wanted to do a long time ago, but were not able to take advantage of. I remember the fall of the great Wall. I wanted to go to Pag and, and buy some real estate. Of course, I didn't have any money whatsoever. So it didn't really work out. But this is the kind of constraints that do eventually happen. And that basically leads to momentum, which is released down the road.
0: Okay, so thank you, Sebastian. Let's go look at our key takeaways for t- today's uh, uh, macro views from Sebastian. So first, uh, the Fed th- could go for negative rates. Now here, obviously the implications for us uh, could be that it would be welcomed by equity markets and, and it could speed up the economic rebound. Uh, I think when the, the, Sebastian and I were discussing this earlier, it's if you could say in simple terms, it's maybe a little bit of short-term pain for, for long-term yeah. uh, gain. Uh, and then secondly, we have momentum worked uh, as volatility faded, but val- Evaluation is uh, uh, now a clear issue now, I think implication here, and we'll discuss this a little bit later with our next guest is growth is just one uh, performance uh, motor of performance in an overall portfolio, uh, but in the context should be combined with other factors. Would you say that these are the the key that your key takeaways for for this morning
1: I would say so, and having taught financial engineering and this kind of stuff for a very long amount of time, we understand the basics of the business very well. Um, at expectations of a factor, we know how to do it. We understand a lot of the elements very well. What we are very bad with is essentially the complexity, the difficulty of, of dealing with a, a much more complex reality than simple factored, uh, allocate, single factor style allocation. It's, it's a very complex job and it's a, it's a pleasure to actually watch somebody who, who actually does it as a profession.
0: Well, thank you again, Sebastian, so much. As always, very insightful, and we look forward again to hearing you uh, next week. And now, from one doctor to another, uh, we transition over to to Astrid. Good morning. Uh, one second. Good, there, mo- good morning. Go. Good morning, Carlo. How are you h- these days? I'm doing very. I'm doing very fine. It's a beautiful day here in Luxembourg. How How is it in in, in Copenhagen? Are you Are you as lucky?
2: Yeah, exactly. the The summer is also coming up here, so uh, so that's very nice. So, 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 look.
0: Uh, I, I know you're a very busy person. We know that you're, you're, you flagship uh, manager for for a lot of our successful strategies here at at Nordea. I think you know it's logical that we begin uh, discussing a little bit what what happened in March. Clearly, 2020 has been a very volatile uh, start. Obviously, will be marked by COVID. Can you walk us through uh, what happened? What are your views?
2: Yes, absolutely, Carlo. So thinking back, it's been a very of course volatile experience going through something that really started as a minor disease something that happened far away or at least for us in China uh you know and was not really an an issue for the market then you know became an issue in Europe in particular in in Italy and and uh, that was of course a little bit more of a scare for the market but in in the beginning uh, if you if you see the screen here then uh, you know what I have on the the left-hand side, just to point out how the market really perceived that, was you know how did U.S. assets develop? I mean the asset class performance here to date of that, and also the counterpart, the European zone assets. How did that develop year to date? And if you look at the if you look at sort of the uh, blue line here that I that I draw in here, then of course the markets initially in March were sort of in a moderate in a moderate phase down, uh, and and took the Sort of news of Italy up, of course, badly, but still in a moderate way. And what was really good about that sell-off, if if anything, was that that actually the bonds, which are the upper line here, the, the very dark blue line, actually performed with with equities coming down. So in the beginning, you had the the classical diversification actually working pretty well. You had you know equities underperforming because of you know the tea spreading and and also of course because of the way that authorities reacted, to the, the close downs, and of course the Precautions for, for, for profits for, for companies around that. So, so, of course, equities had to come down a bit, but the bonds were really good diversifiers around that. So, a, a classical balanced portfolio with equities and bonds it worked really well. But then, something interesting happened that, you know, in, in reality, you know, the, the sell off becomes so pronounced and the fear became, became so pronounced that, that around this phase here, funds started not to go up anymore with equities coming down. So around mid, mid-March, you had the situation that, you know, there was a lot of redemptions around mutual funds and people sort of started to raise cash to the extent that they really could. And that meant in reality that they just sold what they could sell. So everything liquid started to fall because of the redemptions and because of the fears and the need for cash. So then bonds and equities in that way started to correlate because they have, of course, both liquid asset classes. And then you had the classical diversification breakdown that bonds fell together with equities. You know, bond prices were coming down. It was actually particularly pronounced in Europe over on on this side of the slides where, you know, German bonds started to fall uh, more significantly than treasuries largely because of course you have maybe less yield protection in in German bonds. So there you had that yield difference. We've been talking about for some years now, there you had that effect playing out that you know, lower yield means lower diversification. Also in this phase, you know the, the, the sell-off of, and the dysfunctionality around diversification was particularly unpronounced in, in, in Europe. So, so that was really really quite painful for, for investors to experience and meant that a lot of risk parity like funds had, a, had really problems during this phase of the sell-off.
0: And, and Aspen, that, that brings me to, to a very important point is, so when, when we talk about the strategies you manage, such as the, the stable return and, and, the, and the alpha strategies, it seems like they, 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 they perform well in this environment. Can, can you share with us how, I mean, can you share with us maybe what your, your, your secret recipe or was it just, you know, you just sold some equities before the crash and, and you, you kind of lucked out?
2: No way. We didn't sell a lot of equities just before going into the crisis. Unfortunately, we don't have the ability of just the uh, X-raying what is going to happen a, a month from now. Um, so, uh, so rather, you know, our approach is that we we have these uh, diversifiers, some of the classical ones with the bonds, but we also have some more special ones that we've been working with over the last 10 years. So, uh, as we have also been uh, telling more broadly about earlier on, it's it's about these special currency overlays. Where we have a uh, methods to read, I mean, which which currency overlays are diversifying? You know, equity is the best at the moment, but also uh, we've added some equity long-short strategies that have this risk absorption ability. So this risk of ability, uh, and also some uh, country spreads, both on the equity side and on the fixed income side, actually that have this, you know, ability to diversify equities. So I think our our recipe is is not so secret, but rather one of diversification around the diversification if you can say it like that that you play with different risk off strategies that that are likely to you know help you in in an environment like this and and for sure the bonds worked some of the time but not always as we just talked about so it, it was very good that we had these very special auto diversifiers that we've been working with for so long and they eventually proved that you know that they helped in a situation where we had this significant sell off in equities so different currency overlays, different equity long shorts, different uh, you know, country spreads that assisted the classical bond diversification through this phase and also some rotation between, between those four ingredients. So, so we could allocate to the risk or trade that we thought was, was working best this week, so to speak. And, and Aspirin, I actually now, some
0: questions are coming in and I thought this was a, a good one to ask maybe at this point in, in our dialogue is um, one one client is asking, so in the past, you uh, said the 2008 uh, crisis taught you important lessons uh, on how to keep a long-term balance uh, in your portfolios. How is the current crisis different from uh, the 2008 one and what are, are some of your new le- learnings from from the current situation?
2: Yeah, so uh, the, the, I think the main difference going into 2008 was that you, you didn't really have a bond yield problem. So, you, so both interest rate in Europe and the US were you know, significantly higher. You had that more ability to uh, absorb risk uh, in, the, in the government bonds. So you didn't really have this risk parity problem in 2008. So actually, if you had just stuck to a normal risk weighting in 2008, uh, then eventually uh, bonds would have helped you, even though a little bit late in the phase. Um, and um, uh, the reason that it was a little bit late, even in 2008, was some missteps on the central banks in the beginning of 2008, where central banks actually didn't think that the crisis was was that significant. But eventually the risk parity portfolio uh, bailed you out uh, in in 2008. So uh, so then then I think you know we've been of course working with the problem. Uh, of lower yields after 2008 and you know th- then you need some more assistance because the valuation disappears from, uh, from the classical bonds and, and that is why we have invoked other uh, methods of, of diversification rather than just the government bonds. Um, so, so I think the, the, the lesson is uh, from this crisis that yes it was uh, maybe correct invoking more methods of doing risk-off I think you know, uh, we, we are going to continue to work on that I think, and, and expand that uh, concept. Uh, now we have maybe three, four, five methods of doing that. We want you know, to gain robustness around that and maybe build even more strategies that can help balance the portfolio. Um, and then also, there's of course an element, like Sebastian was pointing to, that you have these growth stocks that have been outperforming. So this risk balancing around the equity beta is, of course, the most important risk balance, maybe. But there's also something around diversifying the styles that you have in your portfolio, and and that is, of course, also a lesson that we are learning slowly as we as we go along with the value underperformance that that Sebastian is hinting towards.
0: Absolutely, and if we go back to 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 another uh, question that that you and I had uh, uh, discussed a little bit earlier. So so what what's what's the outlook? Where does the trade-off between the economic deceleration and the st- the stimulus leave us now?
2: Yeah. So so we, of course the the sell-off is a bit different in that way from two thousand and eight and and previous cycles in that that it's a, a you know it's a it's not a demand-driven. Uh, correction that we are seeing. So it's not like there was a bubble somewhere and then the demand has had to contract and then you go into a recession and you sort of have to rebuild that demand. It is a supply side driven uh, Or triggered you can say profit scare and economic scare and and therefore you should think that you know by resupplying that uh, You know into the market rebuilding that supply the demand is still there and unproblematic so by sort of putting the plug back in on the supply then you should actually have a more uh, short-lived short-lived you can say economic sell-off and this is also what i have a little bit on the next slide here if you are able to see that and uh, so 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 you can you can say here what i've done here is that i've split sort of the deceleration into two phases. So first what is happening from 2020 which is 19 and then 2021 which is 19 and what I have on the graph is simply the consensus estimates for earnings growth for MEI worlds and you can see that the mean analysts, if we take the mean analyst by stock and aggregate that up, then they think, you know, profits this year are going to fall around 20%. But interestingly, over from, from 19 to 21, they, they think profits are, are probably going to be flat. I think we are a little bit in that camp. You can, of course, find uh, other interesting and more bearish uh, analysts. So if you, for example, just for experiments here, uh, take the most. Uh, bearish analysts, so what we call the lowest estimates, so the, we take for every single stock the, the analyst that is most pessimistic on that stock and then we aggregate that up instead and see okay what happens then, obviously you are getting a very sort of bearish scenario there and then of course it, that, that scenario is for profits to fall this year 50% and for next year 30% but I think we are probably in the camp given the supply side and age of the sell-off and so on that, that these uh, bearish uh, guys here uh, we hope that they are You know, can stay sidelined in in terms of reality, and then uh, we we are more in this camp that okay, profits are going to fall this year, so we are going to miss one year of earnings growth, one year of of dividends maybe in terms of equity returns. But ultimately, uh, ultimately, you know, we are going to be back in maybe not 21, but then 22 for, for sort of the earnings growth to be on track. And of course, a lot of other things can happen, you know, the trade war can come back up and so on. So you never know what's in front of you. And that is why, of course, diversification is good, because then you don't always need to know what is, what is in front of you.
0: Well, well, certainly you have a lot of a years experience doing it. So, so we, we trust you at your word. Now, I, I know, obviously, in all our investors, I think that, that have known you for a long time, we know that you rely, obviously, a lot on risk premium to build uh, your portfolios. Uh, so let's talk a, a moment a little bit more about momentum versus value. How, how do you think that this will be playing out for, for your portfolios? How has this been playing out rather for your portfolios?
2: Yeah, so so it's back to a little bit what uh, Sebastian was also talking about. So one thing is of course diversification around you can say the equity beta, uh, maybe even the fixed income beta, and how do you how do you deal with that? Um, and then you can of course go into the style investing, and I, and I think inside the style investing, I've just put up on on this slide four different styles that. I guess are very well known out there. So the value style, the quality style, which can have different shapes and forms, momentum uh, and, and growth. And growth is what Sebastian was talking about and what you were asking about uh, you know, uh, uh, with, with Amazon there. And as you can see, if we start with the growth picking up from Sebastian's points here, then growth has had a very nice uh, performance here uh, during the last year, say even 10 years. Uh, where you know equity markets and earnings relations have been strong in, so so the line simply gives us your our our analysis of the style performance of different stock selection factors so so the the growth style that we report here that has this thirty uh, percent uh, performance is a is a, a factor which is a long short equity factor where we take the the best long short stock selection book for. Uh, the growth factor and then we use that as a proxy for reporting on that factor. And, th- and that factor has given around 30, 40% over the last 10 years. So, so, so I think uh, this has obviously been a good factor. I think the reason that that factor outperforms is that it has been fairly, it has been fairly uh, easy, you can say, or at least uh, analysts have been fairly successful or portfolio managers have been fairly successful in de- identifying you know uh, which stocks are going to grow and uh, so the 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 analysts' estimates of of growth have been coming true in reality so uh, amazon of course uh, uh, have been identified very early as a growth stock and that has then become you know reality in so so this is why and when, when this happens that you know that it, it's it's fairly easy to identify growth stocks then that that uh, that sector outperforms now uh, it's not always easy to say that when uh, it is uh, possible to identify identify that so for a long period here uh, from 1999 uh, until uh, 2013 there was a 15 uh, year period where it was not so easy to ent- identify where the growth stocks were so this can of course be a little bit random whether you know this is easy or not but in general of course if there is some ability to predict growth in single stocks then this factor would tend to outperform now uh, of course, 10 years ago, it was more the value stocks, the, which is the dark blue line here, that performed very well up to 60%. And then as you know, there's been this uh, problem around the value factor, which has then been underperforming, particularly over the last uh, four years. And so, uh, so, so, so this comes and goes in, in, in cycles, these uh, this different style of performance. Yeah, so, sorry, so, Carlos, so, go no, ahead. No,
0: no, no, please. No, so you set me up nicely for, for, for my next logical <laughs> question is, when is value coming back and will it ever come back?
2: Yeah, so as you can see, and as I've been trying to explain here, the, the cycles are very, very long, uh, and that is also well known in academic research that it's not, it's not in reality so easy to time these factors. It's not so easy to say that, you know, when are they coming? You know, when are they going up and down? So I think the main key message here is that don't bet on one factor. I mean, because it might work against you for longer than your clients can stay with you. So in reality, you you want to have and also for the, the sake of the consistency in the returns, you want to have multiple factors, and they, that is why I said that when we typically look at value, we do it in conjunction, junction with another factor. And typically, we like to use quality as a factor. So you, you 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 buy you know companies that have a fair valuation or a fairly good valuation, but you don't do it because the quality in the company is bad. So you do it because there's some quality in the company. And as you can say, quality has been complementing. That's this line here has been complementing value nicely uh, over particularly the last, maybe four or five years. And so, so at least even though we like to invest in value, we do it with high quality. And so at least that has led to not too negative performance for the, for the equity portfolios that we have been looking into. And look, as we're in the questions that are popping in
0: now, we don't have time to have every single question, but I'd like to maybe ask one or two uh, that have come in uh, since the, the session has begun. Uh, one client is uh, particularly asking about the, the alpha strategies and saying during the recent uh, March crisis, uh, obviously the alphas had up and down movements and finished the month positively. What were the main positions actions during the month that, was, that led to, to this uh, positive performance?
2: Yeah it's correct that there was some uh, volatility around this risk balancing so uh, it's correctly observed that that actually the fund was uh, first a bit up and then a bit down and then ended a bit up uh, but there was there was, and there was a bit of reallocation between some of these defensive strategies that were protecting the equity book so so uh, so I think what led to the what led to the sort of performance volatility there was more the slippage in this hedging that you can sometimes have. So if you do a currency overlay to uh, protect uh, the equity beta, then the effectiveness of that can vary quite a bit. So it might be that equities are down a week and then only the next week the currency overlay really starts to kick in, in terms of protection, similarly for the equity long short book. It might be that you know uh, that is also a bit asynchronous in the in the protection ability. So it, it doesn't work always like a, a clock. This uh, you know diversification, even though we try to make it work as as precisely as possible, then you know it doesn't work every hour like that. So there, there can be some slippage in the way that this hedging works, and this led to the to the volatility. So I think that's that that's one thing. Um, this this stop-go on the hedging and the asynchronicity of that. I think the the other thing is of course that some of these hedging strategies they have positive convexity. So in reality, uh, they, the delta on the hedging can vary a bit depending on where they are they are on the convexity curves. Now this gets a bit technical, but it's actually <laughs> quite important for our usage. And so 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 it is as if that when when equities sell off that some of these the effectiveness of some of these strategies ac- accelerates almost as equity sells off because of the positive convexity and, uh, of these strategies. And so, so I think it was these two things that, that triggered some, uh, some volatility around the fund, but it eventually worked like we would have expected it should do.
0: And a last question that I, I can uh, pop to you is: uh, a client would like to know what was the contribution of the the tactical asset allocation versus strategic in in the alpha?
2: Yes, so I think um, I think if you look at the uh, tactical asset allocation, then uh, the contribution was a, a bit smaller for uh, the tactical parts. I think what what drove a lot of the performance was rather um, uh, some of our negative, what we call our negative momentum strategies, which means that it's it's strategies that are really built to ensure against this particular environment. I think if you look at the Alpha 15, for example, then those particular negative momentum strategies that we run as insurance strategies, they contributed, you know, year-to-date in Q1 with around six, seven percent. So against, you know, uh, the, the equity beta that were or the net equity exposure that was clean in in, in the fund. So 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 in reality it, it was a lot of that, and then only later here. Then um, actually, what is very interesting around this, because the, the, around that question, is that strategic asset allocation is not too dissimilar from risk, the risk parity book I was talking about before. So, so, so what worked in the first phase was these negative momentum strategies that were supposed to protect the fund, and then in the, in, in the in the second phase, phase here, in, in the second quarter, what has worked really well is actually a. A, a significant contribution from these risk parity strategies that, that started to work after the initial sell-off. So what happened was that we moved a bit of risk budget from these momentum strategies into the risk parity strategies because we could see that these strategic asset allocation risk parity strategies, they gained a lot of value as, as bonds sold off, rates going up together with equities coming down. So the implied valuation from the risk parity, strategic risk parity strategies, were actually looking quite interesting uh, at the end of Q1. So. So the first phase was sort of driven by uh, the negative momentum strategies and then a r- slight reallocation into the risk parity strategies that has lost so, most, lost so much during Q1. And, and then that is really what have helped us in in reality in the comeback here in Q2. All
0: right, thank, thank you so much, Aspern. Actually, can you help me now with uh, going for the key takeaways from your, your session today?
2: I absolutely can. Uh, I absolutely can, Carlo. very should there come we right go. Here for thank- you. Thank you. And as always, like I do with Sebastian,
0: let me know if, if, if there's something that that you would like to add or, 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 or is missing. But uh, for those of you that have been following us this morning with Asbjorn, uh, first key takeaway is sort of there's been this sort of sell off, uh, which turned into severe uh, liquidity crisis uh, with lacks of diversification from uh, safe assets. Uh, Secondly, our our strategies have worked well uh, due to having a a robust portfolio construction based on risk balancing, something that Aspirin and his team has been doing successfully uh, since 2005. I just would like to remind the the long historical track record that this current crisis, not even the 2008 crisis, they faced many different crises. It's always important. Use and identify best non-classical diversifiers. So we've talked about currencies, uh, equity long short uh, strategies, which can help to protect you in these uh, volatile environments. and finally, a com- combine a diversified set of risk premia, uh, which help uh, to outperform. Would you say this is a fair assessment of, of, uh, of, your, of your part today, uh, Asfiren?
2: I think that was very, very well done, Carlo. Thanks for summing that up for me. Well, then,
0: thank you, Aspirin, so much for joining us this week. And thank you, Sebastian. Uh, as always, thank you for joining us uh, at Morning Espresso. Our next guest next week will be Eric Pedersen, uh, the head of Responsible Investment. So we look forward to welcoming him then. Also, I'd like to remind you that you can find more information on the uh, solutions that we've uh, discussed today at Nordea.lu. We also have the Staler website where you can find out more on how you can navigate the COVID crisis with the Nerdia solutions. So until next time, thank you so much for joining us and be well and stay safe. Thank you.